This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So let's understand what's going on with this virus that has captured the attention of the world, to say the least. We talked about its effect on the markets and investors a little bit earlier in the show, but let's get the economic and the medical implications as well. Tom Orlick is chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us from our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. And Michelle Cortez back with us. She joined us yesterday as well. This is a fast moving story. She is health science and medical technology reporter. She joins us on the phone from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Michelle, I want to start with you. Just remind us sort of where we are from a medical perspective. How is it spreading and what do we know about it? Maybe that's new and different from yesterday. Well, the, the, the newest thing is that the World Health Organization decided today to not declare this a public health emergency of, of, global, of global impact. So what that means is that they're not actually shutting down travel, doing, taking more vigorous action on an international stage. I think the reason that they're doing that is because we are seeing it pretty contained in China. We do know that it's transmitting from person to person, but it's not spreading the way SARS did. Like if you're on a plane, it's hitting a whole bunch of other people. It's going to close family members or healthcare people who are taking care of a patient. And so that idea that it's staying a little bit contained is, is somewhat reassuring. And also, um, we aren't seeing patients who are outside of the U.S. where people have traveled. They're not passing it along to others. So that's also a little reassuring at this stage. Right. And let's remind everybody, travel was halted in Wuhan, China, where the virus was first detected. The U.S. State Department, too, also telling U.S. travelers to China to take increased caution while in the country. Um, Tom Orlick, come on in on this. Uh, Chief Economist, of course, at Bloomberg Economics. You know, I think we are starting to assess what might be the possible economic implications Safe to say, though, economic implications are more serious, um, more severe if this goes on much longer. Yeah, I think that's right, Carol. I mean, I think obviously the first thing to say is that it's going to be the medical question, the degree of contagion, the number of people who get infected, uh, which is the primary determinant of the economic impact. Um, And as Michelle says, we just don't know what that's going to be yet. Uh, and some of the signs appear somewhat reassuring. Uh, so perhaps we'd be looking at a fairly minimal economic impact. Um, that said, uh, if, this, if this does play out uh, on a negative scenario, um, then what could we be thinking about in terms of the economic impact? Well, what happened in SARS with SARS in China back in 2003 gives us a window into thinking about that. Um, Back in the second quarter of 2003, which was the peak for SARS impact on the economy, uh, we saw China's GDP growth falling two percentage points, dropped from 11% to 9%. Uh, And the biggest impact uh, was on the services sector. Obviously, if there's a disease outbreak, people don't want to go to the shops, they don't want to go to a restaurant, they don't want to go to the cinema. So the services take the biggest hit. Well, What's happened in China since 2003? Well, the services sector has just grown much bigger. Um, So in a worst case scenario where we do have uh, 
bigger, a, a larger, a larger outbreak, and the Chinese government is not able to contain it, then we could be looking at uh, quite a severe economic impact in the first and second quarter. And Michelle, and I know we talked a little bit about this yesterday, I believe, but I mean, the action does feel swift here in, in terms of the government's reacting. I mean, obviously, there was some relief, as you, as you alluded to earlier, when the WHO came out and basically said, all right, maybe we're, we're not going to sort of go to that next level at, at this point. But help us understand the actions that have been taken, especially in the last 24 hours, in terms of containment and whether it's sort of new and different based on history. Well, it's very different based on history. So what is happening is that China is acting with uh, incredible speed. They have already sequenced the virus, made it available to everyone around the world so that if anyone has a suspected case, they can compare it and determine Mm. whether or not the infection has occurred. And that's critical because that allows public health officials to track any any contacts, and that allows you to predict where the virus might be going and to shut it down before it spreads further. So that's really critical. That's what we're seeing happening in China right now, where they are reaching out to contacts, trying to isolate people, and they are trying to isolate the entire region, which is a little bit, um, which is a little bit breathtaking. It's very bold of them to do it. It's, there's uncertainty as, as to whether or not that will actually work right. to you know, shut down the entire city. Hey, Tom, I do wonder, too, though, when it comes to economic impact, you know, Asia, China specifically, um, more at risk only because I think of the Lunar New Year that's coming up. We did a story in the magazine this week about how the protests have impacted certainly the retail environment uh, in Hong Kong specifically um, and certainly impacted some of those lower wage paying jobs. So I do wonder, though, will it be a greater impact potentially, obviously, uh, in Asia? Yeah, I think there's. I mean, there's two. There's two risks from the uh, from the Chinese new, new Lunar New Year, uh, right. Carol. Um, so the first one is a risk that this accelerates the spread of the disease. Right, we're going to have hundreds of millions of people in China getting up from the city where they work and going home to see their parents and their family. It's like Thanksgiving and Christmas and Easter all rolled into one mm. uh, for 1.3 billion Chinese people. So that's not a good moment to try and contain the spread of a disease. Uh, and then the second risk is the economic one. Well, if these people don't move, if they stay where they are because they're quarantined or there's a disease, which means they don't want to go out and celebrate, well, that's, gonna, that's where the economic in- impact comes from. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thank you both so much. Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics in D.C., Michelle Cortez, health science and medical technology reporter on the phone from Minneapolis. And she does, certainly. Um, This story, first of all, is among our most read on the Bloomberg. So let me just set the scene here. How the index fund giants are drawing antitrust scrutiny when it comes to U.S. M&A activity. Now, this story and the concerns flagged by a recent cover story of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine about the hidden dangers of the great index fund takeover. That story, co-written by Annie Massa, our investing reporter at Bloomberg News, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. You've got them scared. (laughs) Not sure about that, but there are big questions that are being raised. Well, and you raised them in that story that was the cover story about the increased concentration of certain stock ownership, right, when it comes to the the homes, the companies, the houses that really um, are home to a lot of the index funds, the bulk of the index funds. Exactly. So what we mentioned in that cover, what we addressed in that cover story was the increasing 
share ownership in corporate America of three big index funds. That's BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street. You know the three. Right. And um, what we found is that about 22% um, of the average S&P 500 company is, um, is owned by those three firms put together. And the question that's being raised is, what does that trajectory mean for the future of decision-making in corporate America. Well, and especially when it comes to mergers and acquisitions, because obviously those are some of the most important decisions that a company makes. Typically, a merger has to be approved by shareholders on both sides. And so when you have this disproportionate representation, sort of a a concentrated amount of power, and, and you guys name names, and I believe names names were named by, by the FTC, you know, looking at something like AbbVie, Allergan, obviously uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, its acquisition of Celgene. You know, these are really big deals that ultimately have a big impact on not just shareholders, but workers and ultimately maybe taxpayers, right? That's right. What the story today showed is that antitrust authorities are looking at how, at what kind of influence these large shareholders might wield and what kind of communications they're having with the actual companies. So that's the important part, right? You wonder what's going on perhaps behind the scenes, right? Yes. And they have to amass some information to be able to prove anything one way or the other. So they have to look at the communications and see, are, would these index fund companies be trying to put a finger on this scale? It's, that's what the question is, the open question. Well, and one of the questions that you raised that, candidly, I remember talking about this when we talked about the story that I think is so important is there is an influence that is overt in terms of them saying, hey, maybe you should do this, maybe you should do that. But there's also the notion of like, they're not doing anything. They are completely passive and they're not essentially living up to what some might imagine is their fiduciary responsibility to weigh in on mergers and acquisitions. I mean, it's a tricky sort of nuance, right? That's right. Just like you said, one of the things that makes this whole issue so tricky and thorny is that there are two different sides coming at the index fund managers. One side says the fact that they're gaining uh, more power in corporate America means they could determine the outcomes of many different kinds of shareholder votes just you know, essentially boiled down to they could have too much influence. Because they've got a lot of votes. Exactly. The, the, the other side says maybe just because they're passive, they couldn't possibly really have um, an intimate understanding of what's going on at every single company. And so they're too hands off. And so that's really um, the puzzle. And I think that regulators are just taking a look at the fact that this is a concern that comes up in two ways and and they just want to know more. And you do wonder if they're hands off because right often in M&A activity now mind you the acquirer often goes down the share price the target goes up but I you know you do see and then competitors sometimes go up because people are thinking more consolidation in the industry by being potentially the index funds hands off those share prices move up which only kind of makes their business even better and better right in terms of returns and yeah, so on. I'm it, not saying that that's what's going on, but you know, you start to think about what they're either doing or not doing. And keying off of that, one um, big issue you might look at is um, when it comes to activist investors, you can see a very similar thing happening right. at an activist investor le level if they own both the acquirer and the takeout right. target. All right. Well, it's great, great reporting, great impact journalism happening here at Bloomberg. Annie Massa, right in the middle of it, she and David McLaughlin writing the cover story just a couple weeks back and 
at a speed with which we don't normally see things happen when it yeah. comes to the government, uh, the FTC, looking into the implications of this broad ownership by the big three. That's why Business Week is a must read or, you know, online or watch our radio show right. or TV show because we cover these stories and you got to know about it because things are happening. And we're very fortunate that, you know, we have people <laughs> like Annie uh, keeping yeah, us are. honest, keeping the world honest. All right. Annie Massa, investing reporter for Bloomberg here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. The keyword is survival on the new frontier. So the new frontier when it comes to trade might be not free trade, but managed trade. This story is in the current issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine online and at Bloomberg.com. Economics editor Peter Coy writing about it in this week's remarks. He joins us in our interactive broker studio along with Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. He is in our 991 studio in the nation's capital. So Peter, let's start with you. Free trade, I thought that was what everybody has talked about for decades, that this yeah. is the way to go. This is how everybody benefits. Well, it's true. Free trade, let's just get back to basics here, benefits people by reducing the cost of goods, allowing each country to specialize in what it does best. You have more variety, you have more productivity, and it's been a great thing for decades now. Ever since the Smoot-Hawley tariff uh, that helped usher in the Depression, uh, that was the high watermark for tariffs and protectionism. Right. There's been a trend towards more freedom, and it's been a great thing. It's, it's benefited the wealthy nations. It's also benefited poor nations like China, India. But now there's uh, people having some cold feet, some second thoughts, and one obvious person is Donald Trump, who seems to prefer a more interventionist style, not just setting rules and kind of letting the trading partners trade as they wish, but kind of more like quotas and targets. And here's specifically, I want you to do this for me and I'll do that for you. It's, uh, it's more of an interventionism. It's not uh, consonant with the traditional values of what you think of as a Republican Party. Right. And this is a big shift that, that has big implications and not just near term, but long term as well for the way the world deals yeah. with itself. Right. The, the reason it has potentially long term consequences is that the U.S. for a long time has been one of the leaders in pushing for more free trade. Of course, the famous general agreement on tariffs and trade right after World War II. And then in the 90s, we had the World uh, Trade Organization, the successor to GATT. Um, the U.S. You know, the U.S. had some backsliding along the way as well. A bit, bits of managed right. trade, such as voluntary restraints on Japanese auto imports and so on. But the trend has been the U.S. as a sort of guarantor, kind of taking the big picture and saying free trade is good for all. And Trump is more like more nationalistic rather than multinational. He's looking for the the narrow interest of the U.S. and pursuing them in a sort of a narrow way. Joel, this is what I think is smart about the magazine. Like, you know, I think we thought, okay, U.S.-China trade deal, phase one, good, we're done. This is a good thing. But you know what? There are lasting implications um, when we start to see much more bilateral trade agreements versus multilateral. Yeah, I, I mean, and who knows how many more phases are to come. But, <laughs> you know, the I think the thing that I was kind of mostly interested in, Peter, was the term free trade almost feels like wallpaper to me now. It's just been around yeah. forever. Yeah. Where did the term managed trade come from? Well, it's not or a did new you term, <laughs> but, but like Gary Clyde Huffbauer, who was at the Peterson Institute, labeled this as being a prime example of it. 
and we quote him in the article. He said uh, USTR dipped its toe into managed trade with the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. That was a successor, of course, to NAFTA. But he said the U.S.-China agreement is complete immersion. Price signals are out. Quantitative commitments are in. And so he's trying to say... Uh, this is not just a little thing around the edge. This could be the well, new direction. One of the things I, I wonder, too, in this kind of, you know, we all talk about can't we see stronger economic growth kind of in the developed world? And I do wonder how this holds back potentially, you know, economic growth globally. You know, it's that's a it's more of a micro thing than a macro thing at this stage. Obviously, okay. if you have less trade, there's ultimately harms that are in the form of less productivity, slower growth. In the short term, it's more like, well, I'll give you a great example. When, if the U.S. sells more to China because we reach some sort of a managed trade agreement, could be some other countries selling less, and that could be Canada, could be Brazil. Those countries are gonna feel cheated. Right. They've been frozen out because the U.S. is using its muscle to push them aside. Well, that's what the World Trade Organization is supposed to prevent. It's supposed to be like, no, you win uh, a contract on its merits, not just because you, you, you take advantage of your market power. And uh, Trump is very happy using market power. Hey, Peter, you know, I want to take this forward a little bit because obviously we've got this phase one thing with China, but there's some other trading partners that um, are going to be probably in the headlines in the near future as well. Uh, EU yeah, being right. one, probably EU. UK being another. So yeah. what does that look like right, in, so, now, that we're, now that we're in this new world of managed trade? Right. So we just had the, the brand new trade commissioner of the EU, Phil Hogan, in Washington, and he uh, complained about the U.S.-China deal, and he said, well, we haven't looked at it closely, but if we look at it and we conclude that, in fact, it breaks WTO rules, we'll bring a case to WTO on that. Um, so, yeah, this is, as you said, uh, this is very much in the news. This is not just kind of looking in the rearview mirror. And what, what, what do you think the managed trade elements would look like with uh, EU? Oh, it would be like, well, um, Trump is already threatening tariffs on German cars, but right. basically any kind of car coming from the EU. If the U.S. does not get more access to, um, say, the European agricultural markets and so on. Now, there's always been that kind of horse trading. I'm not trying to pretend this is a new thing. Yeah. But, but specifically saying this for that, here's a deal knocked out by uh, negotiators in a back room versus, hey, let's just try to lower tariffs and, and non-tariff barriers and then let the commerce happen however it happens. That's the difference. We're really living in a bilateral world here, aren't we? That's very much Trump's approach. He believes that bilateralism is a more uh, effective strategy, and he likes tariffs because, he, as he reiterated, uh, in signing the phase one trade deal with China. He sees them as a card that you play. So, Peter, just quickly, just got about 30 seconds. Does Trump set the tone for trade agreements for other nations? Because we still have multilateral trade agreements yeah. around the world. Oh, but yeah. I do wonder if, if there's a big shift here, just quickly. Right. Um, so that's another thing that came up in some of the interviews I was doing. Uh, um, some people would say that China, uh, that the U.S. is uh, 
going to be skirted by other countries that are pursuing more free trade or that these other countries will complain about what the U.S. is doing. Right. But what could happen instead is that they'll say, hey, look, we're going to do this, too. If, it, if the U.S. is doing it, why shouldn't we? Right. All right. It's thought-provoking, as always. Peter Coy, economics editor for Bloomberg Businessweek. Check out his story in this week's issue of the magazine. It's also on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com. Our thanks to him and to Joel Weber down in the nation's capital. He was in our 99.1 studio in D.C. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week right here on Bloomberg Radio. Davos. Davos. Annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, as you know. Oh, is that going on this week? Yes, all week. Actually, I think getting ready to wrap up a little bit. Exactly. Um, but we've been hearing from some wonderful um, and well-known voices in both the political world as well as the corporate world. Uh, Bloomberg's Tom Keene and John Jonathan Farrow earlier today sat down with David Solomon over at Davos, of course, the chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs. Once again, U.S. central bank policy was front and center. The monetary policy that's been around and has been in place for a long time, obviously, has been an enormous stimulus. When we, when we sit here today and I kind of think about, you know, the path forward, I think we're now in a period this year after three, mid, uh, three mid-cycle cuts, for lack of a better term, that I don't expect a lot from the Fed in the context of this year. Obviously, the balance sheet's come down a lot over the course of the last couple of years. Um, all of this supports or impacts liquidity in markets. And I think the Fed has done a reasonable job managing liquidity in markets, even with a speed bump back. So I'll ask it again, then. Is that QE as they start to buy T-bills and a balance sheet starts to expand again? Anytime the Fed uses its resources to affect liquidity in some mm -hmm. way, shape, or form, it's having an impact on markets. I'm not going to answer no. the question the way you're looking for me to answer it, because I, I, I don't think it's a black and white answer. You, you tell me what QE is. Uh, no, well, no, we'll, ask, we'll ask Jan Hatzius, we'll ask Bill Dudley, but the answer here is we get a lot of different opinions, including the former member of Goldman Sachs, really someone that drove your economics forward, Mr. Dudley, of the New York Fed. We get all these different opinions, and what our audience wants to know is what you have learned from your pros on the desk of those reactions, the movements that you've seen in the short-term paper market. What have you actually observed in the market that gives you information about these balance sheet challenges? Well, I, 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 I think that everyone observed that the Fed had a very, very significant balance sheet investment and it reduced that balance sheet. There have been a bunch of regulatory inputs, the amount of liquidity that banks need to hold right. as the regulations have changed. And at some point, you can reach a supply demand where, for a variety of reasons, some of them can be idiosyncratic around right. a moment in time, maybe tax payments, that the supply demand of liquidity changes and the price for short-term liquidity rises. And we saw that. The Fed responded appropriately by saying, we want to make sure that there's enough liquidity in the system. And I think all the banks also, I, I know we did, I can't speak for others, we positioned ourselves so at the end of the year, right. when we thought liquidity might be tight, we have liquidity to contribute to that. Delicate question. Are you constrained by the new set of regulations? Are you happy with them? Or do you need to see amendments so you do finance better? No, we, 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 we are an adapter to the regulatory framework. And so I think as an organization, we've adapted very well over the, over the decade to the regulatory framework. And look, the regulatory framework continues to evolve. And so our job is to make sure we can serve our clients well, that we have the right resources, and we do not see, we do not feel constrained to serve our clients well and run our business based on the regulatory framework. We want your take on the markets and the price action we've seen over the last couple of months. The community, the investment community at the World Economic Forum, pretty polarised on what we're seeing at the moment. We've had a whole range of views. We had Guggenheim, Scott Miner, to say that it resembles some of the We had Bob Prince of Bridgewater say that the boom-bust cycle as we know it is over. 
Where do you come down on those two extreme views? Generally not a man of extremes. So, um, so I'd say that there will be booms and busts again at some point, although I don't see one anytime, you know, anytime soon. And, um, you know, as I've been around talking to clients over the last few days, and that's one of the principal things I do while I'm here, you know, I'd say, I, I'd say I, I see and I hear what I'd call kind of a confident middle-of-the-road view of the current economic environment. U.S. economy is in good shape. Manufacturing sector is a little bit soft. Capital spending has been lower than people would like to see, but the consumer right. is overcompensating for that. Europe, a little bit better. Headwinds of the phase one deal helps a little, but in the distribution of outcomes, overwhelming okay. likely scenario is economy chugs along. Economy chugs along. Chugging along, yeah. I mean, so says David Solomon, the CEO and chairman of Goldman Sachs, one of the many big voices our team is talking to over in Davos this week. And I have to say, I mean, my general sense, and tell me if you agree, is that the mood pretty good uh, over in Davos among the chieftains, even if, as we pointed out earlier in the show, their stock performance as a group was not exactly as good as the S&P. Well, and I have to say, I really do Quick love points. that one thing that um, Jonathan Farrow, I think he sat down with the Bridgewater co-CEO, that whole idea of the boom-bust cycle is over. That has gotten so much traction. Yeah. And I know they have been working it into their interviews over in Davos, like, you know, um, talking about that specifically, I think it was Bob Prince, the co-CIO, who said yes. that, you know, and getting everybody to respond because you think about it, right? This is what our world has been about, boom and bust cycles and the length of them, the duration, they're usually usually rather predictable. And we do wonder, 10 years out after the financial crisis, we really haven't seen that again. And so are we living in a different era? Right. Uh, I'm also reminded uh, of the interview yesterday that Tom Keene and John Farrow had with James Gorman over at Morgan. Stanley, where Tom said everyone wants to be James Gorman. I'm not sure he said the same thing to David Solomon. David Solomon's doing just fine. Don't, oh. don't get me wrong. Uh, but the idea that, you know, this and that is a Morgan really Stanley interesting has come time. into its own, right? It's a really interesting time for the big banks. And I also think back, you know, to uh, to the notion that David Solomon is actually one of the only sort of new guys in his job uh, on Wall Street and, you know, has a lot that he's been doing to reshape Goldman from a consumer-facing yep. perspective. You think about Marcus, you think about this new credit card that they have with Apple. So fast-moving there uh, and people keeping a close eye on what David Solomon is doing. So a well, really nice interview from our team. I agree with you about Goldman. It's definitely looking about, like, what, what, what kind of firm does it want to be? Yeah. And the consumer focus is something I would have never thought for Goldman in terms of all of the M&A work and the work that it did with big firms, big investors. Um, so I find that really And I think they've got an investor day coming up they and they're sort of presenting themselves to Wall Street in a different January way. January 29th, they have exactly. an investor so, day. So um, a lot going on there with Goldman. So glad that Tom and John got to catch up. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. 
It is time for the drive to the close. Back with us is Bill Stone, co-chief investment officer at Avalon Advisors. I actually think he might be chief investment officer at Avalon Advisors. He's joining us on the phone from Houston. Um, Bill, nice to have you back with us. Uh, this market environment, we've talked a lot about the virus and concerns about that. We do see uh, what feels like some knee-jerk reactions depending on those headlines. How do you put it into perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of when you, you look at history, um, certainly the odds are that, you know, any sort of major, I, I'd argue, uh, change in your uh, investments is is probably a knee-jerk reaction. You, you certainly hope it is. Um, but even the SARS incident, uh, I, I think you could say that the, the market, frankly, bottomed pretty much uh, as the news of SARS actually broke. Uh, it was already in a downturn before that came out. So uh, I think what I kind of take from it is most of the time when you see these kind of things, um, they they rarely would change any sort of trend. Maybe they exacerbate a trend. Maybe they slow things up, you know, something like that. But, um, you know, setting aside the human cost of it, uh, generally speaking, unless it gets, you know, obviously the worry is it gets completely out of hand. Um, that is obviously historically not happened anytime recently. So uh, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I certainly wouldn't suggest that people react too much to to it. Clearly what you said, you know, you've, I think we're seeing it in the bond market and some, some of the safe havens uh, hasn't shown up a, a lot in stocks yet. And uh, Bill, is this the sort of thing where your phone starts ringing, you start to get emails from clients saying, what do I do? Should I be worried about this? I mean, what's the worry level, sort of next level down? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely got some questions about it. We actually put out a, a little piece uh, about it again, kind of doing that look at what happened during SARS. And it, of course, it's always slightly different and you can always say some things, but I think what to me was clear was it, it again, it's kind of like when you look at a lot of the, you know, same thing when you look at the political thing, um, you can come up with some answers, but at the end of the day, most of the time when you look at these, it's not the main reason why the market's doing what it's doing. You know, it might be a few days, it does something, but in terms of changing trend, it's at least you know, anytime recently, you haven't seen that that was a, a reason for a change in trend. Hey, Bill, I want to ask you about something uh, that our team over in Davos, Switzerland, uh, the World Economic Forum annual meeting, Bob um, had asked one of the guests about, and this is Bob Prince, who uh, helps oversee the world's biggest hedge fund. We're talking about Bridgewater Associates. He says the boom-bust economic is cycle uh, is over, excuse me, that cycle is over. He says the tightening of central banks all around the world wasn't intended to cause the downturn, wasn't intended to cause what it did. But he says, I think lessons were learned from that. And I think it was really a marker, a marker that we've probably seen the end of the boom-bust cycle. Do you think something's changed? Because I do think we all scratch our heads about the duration of this cycle, market and economic cycle, and do wonder if something is different and it's going to be different going forward. Yeah, I, I guess I'll disagree. I think we will have another bust at some point. And, you know, I'm I'm a pretty positive person. I, I remain positive. Uh, it's not that I expect it any time really soon. I think it's a matter of, in most cases, when you look at busts, it's really around either some sort of overheating um, or some uh, extraneous impact. You know, I usually use oil as my example, you know, skyrocketing some, some really high level. Um, or again, you know, some overheating, last one you'd say the housing bubble, right? 
uh, and that bursting, and that's what caused your bust. I think that's what you can attribute this long expansion to is, frankly, we, we all know it's been a slower than historical norm uh, in terms of the growth coming out of it. That in some respects, continues to extend it. I'd also say, you know, there's other reasons why inflation has stayed low, so there hasn't been a reason for the central banks to step in. I don't think that, I guess I'm not willing to assume that that lasts forever. Uh, and so I'm on the lookout for the next bust. Again, I don't see it anytime soon, by the way. It's just, I'm not going to go out and say that there won't be one. Mm. All right. How do you think there will be? How's life down in Houston? How are people feeling about the economy there, Bill? Yeah, I mean, it's good in the sense of, I think, you you know, Houston has moved away from being fully dependent on or almost fully dependent on energy to have it in a more diversified um Which is know, good economy. since the energy sector has gotten crushed over the last year, as you know, right? Correct. And that's what I was going to say. I mean, it certainly is not uh, not happy days uh, in terms of in, in almost any sort of, you know, smaller exploration and production company, anything like that, because at these oil prices, it's difficult for most of them to, well, certainly to make any real serious money, some of them, frankly, to make any money. Right. Uh, and that it's an issue. I mean, it continues to play out in the papers with various, you know, bankruptcies uh, in these companies, things like that, that, you know, we continue to see the shakeout as long as oil stays here. And, you know, who knows how right. long that'll be. Uh, that is a you know, that does push down on things. All right. Last important question for you. Uh, you were nice enough to join us just about every year out at the U.S. Open. Are you watching the Australian Open and how are you feeling so far? Who do you like? <laughs> uh, I have been watching some, but, you know, with that time change, it's I'm brutal. A, I, it kills me because I'm a, I'm a morning person. And, and I guess, you know, sometimes I get up, of course, since there's still matches going on. Right. Bill, you but... know, you can record it. There's this funny little digital device know, called a recorder. I, <laughs> I control myself. I got to go look at the scores. Exactly. You look at the matter. scores and then, you, yeah, exactly. Um, so, no, I, I mean, I, yeah, I've, I've watched some. I mean, I watched what, not the last match from Federer because I'm a – I'm a Fed guy, so uh, he looked pretty good to me, and uh, um, so I don't have any great insights. I don't have any great picks like when I'm, you know, actually at the U.S. Open. Right. Uh, but I'm I'm brushing up. I'll be ready for this year. Good. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing you there. I'm sure we'll talk to you uh, in the meantime. If you haven't seen it, I'm guessing you have. The 60 Minutes profile of uh, Rafa is unbelievably that was a great good profile. so good i was blown away and what oh. a nice guy oh my goodness and kind of handsome can i just put that out there uh, i think more than kind of <laughs> yeah all in handsome thanks for listening to bloomberg business week you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes soundcloud or bloomberg.com you can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m eastern only on bloomberg radio